following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Gospel of John continues to be our study. Chapter 6 is actually a many-layered chapter beginning with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Last time we got into what is called the bread of life discourse, looked at some of what Jesus was saying in calling himself the bread of life. I left out a section in the middle here that I'm coming back to, verses 35 through 47. My particular focus is on verses 37 to 40, and a very important subject that Jesus raises in the midst of this discourse. Listen as I read God's Word. Follow along, if you will. He's speaking to the crowd of those that had experienced the miracle. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the word of the Son of God himself. It may seem a strange connection to this text, but I was thinking about the movie that I could probably count on just about every one of you having seen at some time, if not a million times, The Sound of Music. And I'm thinking about the scene in that movie that was a revision or addition in the movie version, maybe some of you don't know much about the stage version, but Richard Rogers wrote a new song to put in the movie that was not in the stage version when he has Julie Andrews as Maria singing about her sudden discovery that Captain Von Trapp is in love with her. 
And you may remember the words she sings, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, so somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something good. The philosophy being expressed obviously is if something wonderful happens to you, you must have deserved it. You must have done something to cause that wonderful thing to come into your life. Well, that's good for movies and stories, but as an explanation or philosophy to apply to the love of God towards those who believe in Christ, that philosophy and thinking is 100% wrong. If we are, and we should be, overwhelmed that a holy and glorious God actually loves the likes of us, the most wrong conclusion we could possibly reach is, I did something good that made him love me. In fact, the gospel says just the opposite. You did nothing good. You could not possibly do anything that would merit or bring upon you a disposition of God to love and provide salvation for you. It's, in fact, just the opposite because there was nothing good in you that God showed his love for you. I can't recall that I've ever met a Christian who had any real knowledge anyway of Christianity who would out and out deny the proposition that God is sovereign. Say that to any Christian you know. God is sovereign. They say, oh, yeah, sure he is. Of course, I agree with that. But then start to talk about salvation and say, is God sovereign in the origin and entire disposition of your salvation? Oh, well, hold on a minute here. We've got to make a place for free will. We've got to fit me in there. I made the decision. And suddenly, it seems like a lot of folks don't believe God is so sovereign after all. The late D. James Kennedy wrote in an early book in his ministry, I quote him, the reason people today are opposed to the biblical doctrine we call election is because they will allow God to be anything but God. He can be a cosmic psychiatrist, a helpful shepherd, a wise leader, anything, only not sovereign God for a very simple reason, because people want to be God themselves. That's just as true as when it was written 40 years ago. And as we come to John 6 today, continuing with this text, I believe in verses 37 to 39 or 40 here, we have a subject that is parallel to and arises out of the bread of life discourse, and yet is a separate subject unto itself that expresses some things about the very mind and heart of God that are extremely important. These are very important verses. What I'm looking at is Jesus saying here this statement, all, all people that is, that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out or drive away. For the will of him who sent me is that I shall lose none of those people he has given to me, but I will raise them up at the last day. That's the wonderful statement I want to concentrate on for a bit this morning. The setting of this is a continued conversation 
with the folks who had participated in the feeding of the 5,000. And you remember Jesus got away from them. Verse 15, he perceived they were going to take him by force and make him a king, and he left. But they showed up where he was the next day and had more questions and basically were challenging him, saying, okay, we saw one miracle. How about another one? What sign will you do? Prove yourself more. And he was seeing the skepticism that was in these people, despite the fact that they had participated in miracle bread. They were interested in political goals and in entertainment, in a manner of speaking. They wanted to see something great. They said, can't you do something as good as Moses, making manna in the wilderness? And so on. And Jesus knew they really weren't believers. And so he addresses their unbelief in verses 37 to 39. And the implicit question here has to do with why they did not believe. If ever, a, a, if belief was, you know, entirely humanly determined, these people had every reason to declare Jesus as Messiah, having seen that bread and fish multiplied before their eyes. But they didn't. They remained skeptics. They still were challenging. And Jesus reacts in such a way that tells us this didn't surprise him. He wasn't discouraged by the fact that uh, they were acting this way. He knew that people would act this way, even those who saw great miracles, because miracles alone do not usually uh, give a person all they need to trust in Christ. No show of human unbelief is going to daunt God. It didn't daunt Jesus, that's for sure. And it isn't going to hinder God's eternal and gracious purposes, as Christ the Lord makes those clear to us today. First of all, I want you to see the point here that God chose His eternal family. A major theme of the Bible from beginning to end is the action of God to gather a people for Himself. He began doing that long before there was even a nation of Israel. Those who believed were a minority. You see that through the action of people like Noah and his family and so on. Moving on through to Abraham. Abraham wasn't originally an Israelite, you know. He was the the father of the Israelite nation, and he was told, out of you will come a great nation, and they will influence other nations. That was the start of, or at least the open announcement of what we call the covenant of God. Selecting, choosing, identifying a people who would be gods, even though before that there were people of faith. And after that, there would be people not necessarily of Israel alone, but of course, Gentiles as well, who would come and trust in Christ and be part of God's eternal family. Jesus speaks about this. It it sort of jumps right out of the text here in verse 37. When he says this, he's telling them why it is that they're so skeptical, because they're not the people he's talking about in verse 37. All, all those people whom the Father gives me, will come to me. The Father is selecting people who will be his family of faith, both in history and eventually in eternity. A singular group of people, and the identifying factor is that they trust ultimately in Christ. Now, there's a mystery here, and people bring their arguments, and they bring their arrogance, and they say, wait, wait, I don't understand. You mean God take some person and not another person? How can that be? That's un-American. Didn't God know that you have to be fair to be an American? 
What's wrong here? How could God do this? How could he make a choice like this? Well, I don't pretend today or even try any day to solve for you the how and the why behind that. We're not told that. That is left to the mind and the heart of God, and it is a great mystery. But we are absolutely told here that God is the initiator of salvation. And so the Bible presents a doctrine that we call the doctrine of election, which, you know, it's a, some people, it's a, it's a whispered word that never gets out of the closet. It's out of the closet. I'm talking about it. Election. And it's not the second week of November. Okay? God was pleased from all eternity to choose men and women from all races of the earth, all periods of history, according to his own counsel, according to a mysterious wisdom kept now at least from our prying eyes to know why or who. And then it is God who awakens faith so that we will come to his appointed Savior. Even the Old Testament people came to Christ in expectancy as a Messiah. Yes, once awakened by God, we are responsible by our will and our faith to believe in him, to repent of sin, to walk obediently before him. But if God did not initiate, we would not do that. Now, there isn't any question, absolutely no question, that the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. You couldn't possibly dispute with me and prove to me or anyone else in this room that the doctrine is not in the Bible. The question is only, what do you do with the doctrine? Do you put it away and bury it out of sight and say, I just can't talk about that because I haven't figured it out? Or do you say, here is a great truth, a magnificent truth, and it's great and it's marvelous and I can't completely solve it by my logic, but God declares it to be true. There are many people that just hate this truth for the primary reason that they can't figure it out and it doesn't leave them in control. And if you might be among those that are even boiling inside to think about this truth that I'm declaring, I just ask you, did Jesus himself not clearly teach this doctrine in this passage? And I'm going to name quite a few more passages. And does it not correspond to many Bible texts that we could take time to name? I'm going to name some today, but not even scratching the surface of all that could be mentioned. For example, is the idea of God choosing a forever family found in the Old Testament? Well, of course it is. And I could spend an hour just reading off texts one after another. I'll take three only because time's limited. Numbers 16.5 has a text that's not often noticed. It says this, The Lord will show or demonstrate who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near to him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Psalm 65, another passage, verse 4. Blessed are those, Lord, who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Psalm 80, verse 18. Quicken us, O Lord, and we shall call upon your name. In other words, bring us to life. We're dead. Quicken us. Turn us, O Lord, and we shall be saved. Now, those are just a few, a tip of the iceberg, little sample of Old Testament passages on that doctrine. Does Jesus teach this anywhere else in the other Gospels besides John? I would say that the statement here in John 6.37 would be the weightiest, perhaps, statement that he makes 
Jesus himself on this doctrine, but it's there in other places. Mark 13.22 has him talking about people being deceived in the last times of earth, and Jesus makes the statement that if it were possible, those false teachers will deceive even the elect. Those are words from his mouth. Matthew 24.31 talks about the final return of Christ in history when it says he shall send his angels and they shall gather together who? His elect, God's chosen ones. And then you ask the question, besides the Old Testament and the Gospels, does it agree with other New Testament teaching? And here there's such an abundance of things that the answer is a resounding yes. Acts 13.48 has Luke observing that many were responding to Paul's missionary preaching. And Luke described some being saved in a particular place. And he said, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Of course, they had an action of themselves, their will. They had to trust Christ and believe. But Luke says behind that was God's prior appointment. Romans, you know Paul, of course, carries this doctrine eloquently. Romans 8.28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Most people love this verse and they stop right there. God works for the good of those who love him, but the verse doesn't stop there. It's comma, who have been called according to his purpose. God works providentially for the good of those who are his called ones, his eternal family. Then, of course, you have Romans 9 through 11. And the passages there, some of them are very hard, hard to deal with and almost to be repulsive to the minds of some people when you read of God choosing the younger brother Jacob to be blessed instead of the older brother Esau and the argument from the Old Testament presented in Romans 9 is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'm God. I have this right, is the Lord's answer. Similarly, in that same section, Paul talks about the lump of clay. and says, does a piece of clay, a blob of clay, say to its maker, to its potter, what are you doing? I don't want to be a pot. I want it to be a vase. Absurd. Of course, the clay doesn't talk back to the potter. And Paul compares that to ourselves, saying God doesn't have a right to choose whom he will choose. Then there's the grand statement of this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, that just rolls off the apostle's tongue and pen, telling Christians how, quote, the Father chose us believers in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. He didn't just choose us to be saved. He chose us to be sanctified, completed, matured, in the faith until we would come to resemble Christ more and more. Second Thessalonians 2.13. There Paul tells believers from the very beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through a belief in the truth. First Peter 1.1. Peter, the apostle, opens his letter and says, to God's elect. That's who he's writing to. To those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge, 
of God. You begin to get the sense. I don't have to elaborate with dozens and dozens more texts that they're available if we had the time. God chooses his eternal family. Oh, yes, of course, mankind has a certain measure of free will. It's simply not the absolute free will that you and many others might perhaps think that you have. You have free will to choose whom you will marry, what career you will have, what job you will take, what automobile you will drive, what home you will buy, countless little things you choose to do to have a ham sandwich or a turkey sandwich every day. Of course you have that kind of free will. But the belief debated by great theologians for ages is you certainly do not have an absolute free will to make the greatest and most profound choices, that is, the choice to know God. You lost that free will in the sin of our race. We, like Adam, sacrificed that, and now we can't choose God. God has to choose us. And by the way, did you ever think about the idea of if you're one who wants to contend for free will as the bottom line of this whole matter? Does God have free will? Will you allow God to have free will to do with his creatures as he decides to do? Or would you say your free will somehow has to top his? Do you see the arrogance we can bring against our God? When we say out of one side of our mouth he's sovereign, but then we say, oh, but he doesn't have a right to do that. The Scripture says God chose his eternal family, and we don't know all the hows and whys. Secondly, our text here, a shorter point in John six thirty-seven. Our text claims that the Father gave this eternal family, once he chose it, into the hands of his Son. You see Jesus saying that all those the Father gives to me will come to me. Behind our coming to Christ is a gift of the Father turning over to his Son each person destined to belong to him by faith. The choice of God in eternity has an effect in real history as Jesus Christ does that which takes charge of God's chosen people, and provides what they need to be saved. And the mystery of this is, you know, coming to, it says coming to Christ. That's a a term there that describes everything we do, I guess, as we trust Jesus as Lord. We've just been examining new members and communicants from our youth class. It's fun to talk with them and Just had a little discussion with one of our young men this morning about his faith. How did he come to Christ? How was he aware of himself as a sinner? How did he know he had to bow before Jesus and call him Lord? What did that look like in his experience? The mystery of the whole thing is we were not coerced into doing this. People say, oh, you you Calvinists, you know, you're just fatalists. No, there's no coercion here. And in fact, it's, it's a wondrous thing when you talk about coming to Christ. It's more like a wooing of a lover for a loved one. As God awakens us and our will responds and we say, yes, Lord, I do believe in you. I do trust in you. And all of a sudden, our will is able to do what it could not do before God by his Spirit awakened it. No wonder we call it a new birth. 
And again, I've said it many times. How many babies have you ever heard of deciding that they would be conceived? Does not happen, folks. You did not decide. I, I like to make the little joke. I used to tell my sister that it was great. I decided that I would be born in June 20th so that I got presents halfway through the year to Christmas and exactly, almost exactly six months. I thought, good planning, Michael. Of course it wasn't good planning. I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And so does Romans 9, 16 state, it does not depend, spiritual birth that is, does not depend on man's desire or man's effort, but God's mercy. God the Son took the plans of the Father and put them into effect in history. I love the passage in Isaiah 53. It's, it's a part of Isaiah 53 that isn't always noticed as much as some other parts. You know that that's a chapter that predicts the Messiah in his suffering. We call him the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and, and the cross seems to spring to life out of that chapter. But one part in verse 10 there, Isaiah 53:10, has a picture in advance, hundreds of years in advance, of Jesus in the agony of his crucifixion. And it says, as he's suffering, he will see his offspring. Now, that doesn't predict that Jesus will be married and have seven children or anything of the kind. It means that out of his great work will flow generations and thousands and millions of people who will truly be his children of faith appointed by God. And he has them in a, in a manner of speaking in view even as he dies. You think of his final prayer. It's here in John 17, that wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed the last night before the cross when he was praying for those who had been given to him. Just listen. John 17, 2, he said, Father, you granted the Son authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you gave to him. 17, 6 of John, I revealed you, Father, to those you gave me out of the world. John 17, 12, he concludes that prayer and says, I protected them, the people he'd been talking about, and kept them safe. None of them, the ones you gave me, has been lost. Then there's a wonderful verse in Hebrews 2, verse 13, that has a figurative picture of Christ sort of coming in triumph after his cross, after his great work, coming before his Father. And Hebrews 2, 13 pictures Christ saying to the Father, here I am and the children you have given me. You get that picture? Christ heading a triumphal procession and you're in it, along with millions given to him for the work of his cross, the application of his righteousness, the renewal of eternal life, the gift of eternal life by trusting in him. Here I am, Father, and the children you've given me. Wow. What a scene that is. The Father gave this eternal family over to His Son so the Son would bring us back. And this leads us thirdly to this, that Christ in this passage guarantees security to His eternal family. 
Certainly this passage guarantees security. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that's stating it negatively. I won't reject them, but he also states it positively. I will raise him up at the last day in verse 40. I will never cast him out. You know, people raise that hypothetical question. You may have had it thrown at you at some time, and maybe you scratched your head and said, boy, I don't know how to answer that one. What if somebody wants to be a Christian and they're not elect? Well, you know, there are tough questions to answer, but that's not among them. That's almost a silly question. If you understand what the Scripture is teaching, if someone possesses an inkling a thread of awakened desire to seek Christ, to know Him, to have the life of God, to have eternal life and salvation, where do you think that little inkling or thread came from? It was not in their nature. They were not born with it. It was from the Holy Spirit of God who stirred up this new life. And so the mere fact that someone has that interest shows the work of God in that person. We don't need to fear. We're secure. When we seek after Christ, we don't have to, you know, thrash ourselves and say, oh, maybe I'm elect, maybe I'm not. Yesterday I was, today I'm not. No. If you long for Christ and love Christ and trust Christ, God put that in you. That's God's work. It's not a work you could do by yourself. The Puritan author Thomas Brooks wrote something long ago. He said, Christ is answerable, to the Father that is, Christ is answerable for all those given to him at the last day. So we need not doubt that he will employ every power of his Godhead to secure and save all those for whom he is accountable If you trust in him, you're under the care of the greatest defense attorney, the greatest protector, the greatest shepherd. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the greatest conqueror there is. He will not cast out his own and he won't lose you. What an amazing, glorious work is the design of God. It's not something to fight against. It's not something to say that's not possible because I don't understand it or can't control it. It's something to marvel over. Here's our security that Jesus Christ himself will present those in whom God has awakened an interest in him as Lord at the final day. He will raise us up. Matthew Henry, the commentator of a couple hundred years ago, wrote this. He said, Just as God's omniscience, that means all-knowing, just as God's omniscience is engaged in finding his elect in history, so is his omnipotence, all power, active to bring them all home. God's omniscience and God's omnipotence work together to bring his people home. God is sovereign in salvation. He is the master potter. Do you understand how foolish it is? I'm sorry if this insults you, but you're a lump of clay. So am I. And as a lump of clay, how dare we argue with the great and sovereign God who has said, this is how I work. 
I am not that weak, ineffectual deity that some people have painted. Oh, poor God. God, said Jesus, and he's wringing his hands. Will any of those people over there trust in Jesus? I hope they will, but maybe they won't. Oh, maybe somebody from over. Oh, I hope somebody will accept my son. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the God of the Bible. That false picture portrays a God to be pitied, not worshipped. God is sovereign over the work of salvation. He does the work. What a great encouragement this actually is. Not a problem to be argued with, but something to encourage every preacher as I preach. I know that God's people are hearing. Some are not. And I can't say whether they may someday be God's people or not, but maybe even today as an unbeliever hearing this message, they're working it over and they're arguing with it and they're mad at it, but one day God in His Spirit is going to break through. And every preacher and missionary and Sunday school teacher, parents, God is sovereign in the salvation of your children. Now, that's not the same thing as my saying. I guarantee you, every member parent of Westminster Church, your children will one day be saved. I cannot make that guarantee, but I can guarantee to you that God is sovereign and that He uses the weak, ineffectual, seeming vessels of Christian parents who read the Scripture and pray with their children and model a Christian life. Most of the time, He uses that. You know, the Bible calls the, talks about what I'm doing right now, the foolishness of preaching. Well, there's a foolishness of parenting. We say, how could my weak parenting ever accomplish the goal? Well, God uses it. His Spirit takes hold of it and uses it according to His purposes and His design. Here's a truth to humble our pride and break down our self-will and arrogance and leave that in the dust because as we recognize God's sovereignty in salvation, we should have a great reverence for such a God who saves anyone, a great thankfulness that lasts all our days to say, He saved me. How can I not talk about this? How can I not praise Him for this? Lift His name high. Why me? Why would He take me? Not why didn't he take Tom, Dick, or Harry. Why me? I think heaven will reveal it, but not until then. And until then, it's good enough that Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast him out. Thanks be to God. Our Father, what a wonderful truth. We've flown over it from a high-angle view, but it's a wonderful thing that you would save any given the way mankind treats you and regards you and criticizes you and takes your name in vain and mocks you and sneers at you. Father, I pray For anyone who's struggling today to say, I don't think I've got my act cleaned up enough yet for God to save me. Let us see that salvation comes from you and your will and your Holy Spirit and your grace.
and it comes to the most undeserving, those who have earned nothing, you offer us this beautiful gift in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation. Amen.